place where our hope resides is revealed in our moments of waiting. When we come to Christ as our Savior in simple, childlike faith, we will find salvation rest. We have a greater high priest. We only need Jesus to be our advocate. Well, as Todd has reminded us, this weekend we are exactly one month away from Easter. Easter is our biggest outreach to the tri-state area. And I wonder how many of you in this assembly here at 9 o'clock this morning have a yard. Do you have a yard? I have a yard. Most of you have a yard. Have I got a deal for you? A yard sign that you can put in your yard for one month and then remove it, whatever you do after Easter. And uh, that would be a minimal way that you could help us advance Easter 2016. Promises to be a Wonderful, wonderful time. And next weekend, I should remind you that we have an opportunity to affirm our elders' unanimous recommendation of Patrick Garcia as our lead pastor at Crossroads. Come prepared for that, both in prayer and prepared to affirm our elders in that decision next weekend. Well, I trust that you're getting a consistent message in this series that both Jesus and the Christian life are incomparable. Jesus is supreme. The Christian life is superlative. You cannot improve on it. And neither he nor life in him can be equaled, let alone surpassed. And the book of Hebrews was written to both review and reveal God's plan to restore us to himself. His plan commenced in Genesis chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden right after the fall of Adam and Eve when the first coming of Jesus was prophesied. And it has continued down through the centuries. And his plan will be consummated in Revelation 22 with the second coming of Jesus to begin God's eternal day. Because his consistent desire... His consistent desire is to save us from the consequences of our sin in this life and to secure us for the joys of heaven and the greater life to come. Nothing matters to God more than seeing all people everywhere respond to his grace, seeing people follow Jesus, be changed by Jesus, and be on mission with Jesus. Our salvation and the salvation of the whole world are paramount, paramount to our Heavenly Father. And we saw back in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3, so what makes us think we can escape if we ignore this great, I added the E-R, this greater salvation that was first announced by the Lord Jesus himself? But that being said, I'm sure you know that there are several religions out there that, that offer salvation. For example, Islam promotes salvation. If you live in a way that pleases Allah, you can gain entrance into paradise. Now, Muslim paradise is a place of physical pleasures, literal Lofty mansions, gourmet 
food and drink, and virgin companions. I can document this content from their primary texts. Muslims believe that at puberty, an account is opened up in your name, documents your deeds, and it'll be used on an unknown day of judgment to determine your eternal fate. Muslim salvation is based on doing good works and earning Allah's favor. And did you know that personal salvation is actually the goal of Buddhism? But according to Buddha, salvation comes from within you. When an individual has awakened from what they call a delusion of permanence, or when they have been freed from all earthly relationships and attachments. The Buddhist path to this goal includes several recommended practices, mostly a lot of solitude and a lot of meditation. But ultimately, it's up to you. It's up to you through your own individual effort to purify your mind and reach the state of enlightenment. And the way of salvation in Hinduism has evolved over time. So you've got early Hinduism, you have got modern Hinduism, and you've got popular Hinduism. But basically, it is all nature worship. There are many gods. And to obtain salvation, you've got to offer prayers and offerings, and you've got to repeat magic formulas to avert the wrath of these many and varied and easily offended gods. Of course, salvation in Judaism is an ongoing process throughout life of trying to keep the law and in being sorry when you don't. But the Jews, you see, do not see themselves as sinners by nature. The Jewish version of salvation is not personal. It is national. That is, the same way the Lord restored the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, that's the way he'll restore Israel in the future, collectively, not, not personally, not individually. Well, Christianity is a remarkable contrast to all the salvation options offered in the other so-called great world religions. The author and finisher, finisher of our salvation is God himself. The reality of sin, the consequences of sin are undeniable. Individuals and society are clearly in need of help. Man, in spite of his intelligence, in spite of his enlightenment, cannot save himself. God has a plan for the salvation of our souls in spite of our unworthiness. And here it is in a single verse in Acts chapter 4, verse 12. Salvation can be found in no one else throughout the whole world. No other name has been given among humans through which we must be saved. This is the greater salvation, my friends. It's found only in Jesus for people throughout the whole world, people of every tongue and tribe and nation in every generation. And maybe the most powerful declaration of this truth is found in our text today in Hebrews chapter 9. That's where we are today. Hebrews chapter 9. I want you to look at verses 26 through 28. But he, that is Jesus, 
has appeared. Once for all, at the culmination of the ages, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Now, for those of us who are alive and well here today, the topic of salvation seems to have a kind of a surreal quality about it. We tend to think of salvation in terms of what's yet ahead of us. We think it's on down the road in life. After all, salvation is most relevant when we die, right? Or, or when Jesus Christ comes back to earth again, like we just read in our text, and that can't be now. <laughs> That's got to be later. That's not today. That's someday, right? And because we think salvation is not a present concern, we think it is not an urgent concern. But then something happens. You have a close call in an automobile. You're facing a high-risk surgery. You're diagnosed with cancer. You lose a good friend. You go through a tornado scare or a perilous plane flight or you just recognize that you're aging and all of a sudden you find yourself giving attention to your salvation, something that once seemed insignificant becomes very important. And today I want to key on verses 27 and 28 from Hebrews 9 because I think there are three truths in, this, in these two verses that really amplify our need for a greater salvation. And here's the first truth. Pretty simple, pretty profound in its simplicity. Death is certain. It's in the first part of verse 27. You remember what it said. People are destined to die once. Now, medical science has done wonders in extending our lives. New surgical procedures bypass clogged arteries, and some of you here in church this morning are living proof of that. New technologies are available today to filter impurities from our blood, to fight cancer cells, replace our worn-out knees and hips. Vaccines have virtually eliminated once-dreaded diseases like polio and smallpox. But no one has discovered a cure for death. Despite all the advances that have been made, it's still 100% accurate, there will be one death for every birth. And a couple of realities about death. First, death is no respecter of persons. It enters uninvited into the mansions of the rich as well as the shacks of the poor. And it doesn't matter if you're in good shape or if you are out of shape for most of your life. That may affect the timing of your appointment with death, but the appointment is one that all of us will eventually keep. As I was writing this message on Wednesday of this past week, I received a text from my doctor, wonderful Christian 
man in our church, Dr. Larry Lutz. And I was just in to see him this week for my annual physical, which always includes blood work. And here's what his text said. All lab work is excellence. Excellent. All lab work is excellent. I will mail you a copy. I read that text, and I paused long enough to sincerely thank the Lord. And then as I returned to my writing, I said to myself out loud under my breath, my lab work won't always be excellent. Ecclesiastes 7.2, Solomon wrote it. For death is the destiny of everyone, the living, the living should take this to heart. So the question is not how can we remain alive because we can't. The question is what awaits us when we die? The second thing I want to say about death is that death is permanent. There was an item printed in Newsweek magazine a few years ago. It was a letter from the Greenville County, South Carolina Department of Social Services. The letter was actually written to a deceased person. Here's what it said. To whom it may concern, your food stamps will be stopped effectively immediately because we have received notice that you passed away. (laughs) You may reapply if there is a change in your circumstances. (laughs) Duh. Death is irreversible. When you cross over, there's no coming back. But in fact, people are often guilty of telling themselves lies about death. Here's some of the lies people tell themselves about death. One is, I'm going to live forever. Now, of course, we know intellectually that's not true. But we often behave like it is. We act like it is. A research psychologist named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross Change the way people talk about death and dying because of her book by the same name. Based on her interviews with several hundred dying patients, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross contended that people go through five emotional stages as they near the end of life. And I've observed that grieving the death of a loved one often causes you to experience these same things. Here they are in a list. First, there is denial. Our initial response is, not me, not me. The idea is, maybe if I don't believe it, it won't happen. I'm just going to wake up tomorrow and find out this has just been a bad dream. Denial. And then reality sets in and anger takes over and a person cries out to God feeling injustice. Why me? Why me? Patients will sometimes turn on their family members or their caregivers, nurses or doctors. Usually the anger does not last very long. Then thirdly, there's bargaining. Bargaining, it's usually more private. A patient will pray to live long enough to experience some event, and he may make promises if only God will allow him to live. And then fourthly, there's depression depression, the person begins to mourn past regrets as well as all of the things that they will not get to experience in the future. And then the fifth and final stage is acceptance. And this acceptance is 
capitulation. It's resignation for a non-Christian who gives way to hopelessness and despair. But for people of faith, this acceptance brings a peace and a bright hope that transcends the grave. And it's a beautiful thing to behold, and I've seen it many times. Someone has said the two greatest mistakes in life are both mathematical, misjudging the brevity of life and miscalculating the length of eternity. Here's another lie we tell ourselves about death. If I mess up, I'll get a do-over. Well, golfers may get mulligans, and batters may get three strikes at the plate. But life is not a game. It's not a run-through. It's for real. We only get one shot. But people have come up with some elaborate things to believe. Reincarnation, of course, is the man-contrived doctrine of Eastern religions that is entirely based on the subjective feeling of deja vu. This feeling that I've been here before. The idea is that your soul is recycled into some new life form. Actress Shirley MacLaine has been the spokesperson for this idea in her book, Out on a Limb. But after reading it, some critics have suggested that she was out of her tree. (laughs) Of course, have you noticed that everybody... Have you noticed that everybody who embraces reincarnation always think that they've been somebody notable or they've been somebody historically significant in their past? No one has been Joe Blow or Jane Doe from Podunk Holler. Then in Catholicism, you've got the non-biblical second-chance doctrine of purgatory. And the idea here is that you pay for your sins by suffering for a time. And then after purification, you enter heaven. And this doctrine proposes that a living loved one can actually shorten the time of their relative in purgatory by lighting candles and praying and making special gifts to the church. And then you've got the Mormon doctrine of proxy baptism for the dead. This offers the hope that A person who dies as an unbeliever can be saved by the faith and the actions of a believing relative. Another concept that's foreign to the clear teaching of the Bible. So, I'll live forever, I'll get a do-over, and lie number three, people tell themselves, death is all there is. The idea here is that when you're dead, you're dead like a dog. You're dead like a tree. This is the most popular lie that people tell themselves. I heard about an older lady who was riding on a crowded bus. She was sitting there quietly reading her Bible when a rather distinguished-looking man took the seat beside her, and after a while, he noticed her reading material. So he introduced himself as Dr. Brown, professor of philosophy at the local university, and he asked the lady, don't tell me, you believe that stuff you're reading? And the lady said, I certainly do, every word. Even that story about Jonah and the whale, said the professor with a smirk. Of course, she replied. He asked, well, can you prove that story's true? Well, knowing she wasn't going to change his mind, she simply said, well, when I get to heaven, I'll ask Jonah. And the professor smiled, a condescending smile, and said, well, 
what if Jonah is not in heaven? The little old lady laid her Bible down, looked the professor square in the eye and said, then you can ask him. And (laughs) You often hear people say that spiritual life is just not that important since we're all going to the same place anyway. You know, the last half of that statement is true. We are all going to the same place, to the judgment. Yeah, it's in our text. Death is certain, but here's something else that we learn. Judgment is real. And after that, after death, to face judgment. Verse 27b, according to the Bible, we face judgment. And the first judgment is for believers. It's called the judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now listen, this judgment does not concern salvation. Our salvation has already been settled. It's been determined. This judgment is for believers to determine their rewards for service given to the Lord while they live. You remember sometimes Jesus spoke of the difference in rewards from the master to his servants. It was based on their faithfulness, based on the stewardship of their lives, based on their stewardship of their God-given gifts. But there's, a, there's another judgment spoken of in Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, called the great white throne judgment. In verse 11 of chapter 20 of Revelation, and I saw a great white throne and one sitting on it. The earth and the sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. John said, I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne, and the books were open, including the book of life. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was cast into or thrown into the lake of fire. All those who rejected Christ as Savior one day will have to face him as judge, and it will be a horror beyond words. To stand before him and hear him say, I'm sorry, you did not believe in me, you did not receive me, you rejected my forgiveness, you spurned my grace, you wanted a life without me, you did not accept the great salvation I offered, so now depart from me. Death is certain. Judgment is real. Finally, this, from verse 28 in our text, salvation is coming. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many, and he will appear a second time, the Scripture says, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. There's a sense in which salvation is both present and future. It's a present reality. It's also a future hope. Salvation is here right now, and it's available 
to us, but it's also coming for us in the future. When Christ appears a second time, and you and I can be saved today, and you and I will be saved one day soon when Jesus comes again. So tell me, until Christ returns, just how secure is our salvation? Well, it's guaranteed. It's guaranteed, but it's not automatic. Does this make sense? God can be depended on to keep his promise to us. It's guaranteed. But in a covenant relationship, we must maintain our devotion, our faithfulness to him. And that's not automatic. Jesus promises that he's coming again, and it'll be the final act of history, his story. It was expected in the first century, and it's been expected in every century since. We anticipate his appearing. We are waiting for him. We believe Jesus, his last recorded words in the New Testament. Behold, I am coming soon. Richard Dawkins is a biological evolutionist. He's an outspoken atheist who believes that we're silly for believing in God at all. Not to mention the idea of his son coming back to usher into existence a heaven of unending joy. When, so when Dawkins was asked about what his scientific tradition taught about the end of all things, Dawkins responded, quote, what my tradition or your tradition or the Dalai Lama's tradition or Osama bin Laden's tradition or the bad trick tradition of whoever wrote the book of Revelation says about anything in the real world, including its end, is no more likely to be true than any urban legend, idle rumor, superstition, or science fiction novel, end quote. So, it comes down to this, doesn't it? We just each have to decide. We have to choose. Either the secularism of Richard Dawkins or the greater salvation of Jesus. We either exercise our capacity for faith or we succumb to our capacity for doubt. So what's at stake? Nothing less than the destiny of our eternal soul. If Jesus never returns, then he was a liar and most likely still buried in some unknown grave in Palestine. If Jesus returns, everything we've ever hoped for, ever longed for, will be validated in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye. And you and I, we can't make our choice then. In that millisecond, It'll be too late. Now, we know the end of the story. We've read the last chapter. Now we've got to choose what story we're going to invest our lives in. Which story will we live? Will we live the story of a Richard Dawkins? Or will we live the story of the Alpha and Omega? Because one day, there, there will be a reckoning for our choice. 
but we're waiting. And we know that salvation is coming. A greater salvation than we can comprehend. Will you stand with me for prayer? Creator God, our Father in heaven, thank you that your word is so clear and logic and reason in our best moments tell us it's true, the death is certain, the judgment is real, there be some accountability for the life lived in the flesh. And that wonderful promise from your word that salvation is coming. And Lord, we want to wait patiently for that, which means that we're not going to sit around and twiddle our thumbs, wait for it to become reality. We're going to be busy waking up others spiritually, influencing others by our servant spirits, by our consistent love. We're going to outlive, Lord. We're going to outlive and, every, and outlove everybody in our circles of acquaintance, our circles of influence, as we await this greater salvation that's coming. As your Spirit enables us, empowers us, we pray. Amen.